Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. You want to do right by your parents' sacrifice. Like, they did so much for you. And you want to, you want to show up and, like, make sure that they're proud of you because of how hard they worked for you. Because I felt like they sacrificed so much, I felt this, I placed a huge pressure upon myself to do well. And a lot of that was myself placing that pressure. And I felt like I had to go to the highest of heights for them to to accept the work that I did. So for example, I had to write a book for them to say, wow, yeah, we can see you being an an artist. Well, folks, today on the Cuse Conversations Alumni Podcast, we are pleased to welcome on Malika Garib, a 2008 graduate with a dual degree, both from the Newhouse School uh, in Journalism and Marketing from the Whitman School of Management. I'm really excited to tell her story today on the podcast. She works at NPR as a journalist. She's also an author, a cartoonist, and she really has a great story of finding herself and her identity and what it means to grow up. Uh, she, Her parents are both immigrants that came to this country. She has a great story of identity and learning who she was and embracing what it means to live the American dream. Malika, was that a good enough introduction to bring you on the podcast? That was a beautiful introduction, John. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And I'm so so excited to be here. Um, I loved my experience at Syracuse. What did it mean for you to go to Syracuse and what made you choose Syracuse in the first place? Oh my gosh, it was such a dream. I mean, um, you know, my chief aim in high school was to put myself in a place where I could um, just be like the people who I saw doing things and doing big things. You know, I had this life for myself that that was bigger than, than my hometown and traveling from California to New York and being able to be at a beautiful school with ivy growing on the brick and, you know, this fall foliage and of course eight months of snow which I didn't realize at the time it was just awesome and I got to meet so many cool people I had great memories there you mentioned you know coming to Syracuse and coming from California and and the whole experiences you work here at NPR uh, doing journalism and I can't think of a more challenging but also interesting and rewarding time to work in this field given COVID-19 Uh, We have the vaccines that are being implemented, but it's still a a huge pandemic we're living through. The presidential uh, election and the inauguration, the turnover from one administration to another. There's so much that's riveting about the news. What is it like for you, Malika, to be working in journalism at a time like this? I'm so tired. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired about writing the the pandemic and reporting on and editing it. Like, Um, I work on NPR science desk and I specifically work on the global health and development team. And so um, since since like December, we've been covering um, the crisis and we have explored so many of the angles, gone deep 
Um, and it just seems like it's never ending in the vaccine. It's like an, another year, of course, um, in, in, in deep diving on this. Um, right now, I'm, I'm right, working on a story on the World Health Organization's efforts to fight misinformation. Um, and I've been talking to researchers all morning and trying to, to, to assess whether their efforts have been effective. It's just, it's just really, there's so much going on. I also um, have been able to draw comics. I, I'm an illustrator as well around the coronavirus. And um, I've been doing a bunch of guides for children on how to cope with the coronavirus and uh, how to protect yourself from the coronavirus. And um, I just think that it's great to be at a place where I can use all of my talents, do radio, illustration, comics, writing. And I do social media too, so throw that in there. You're really a multimedia threat when it comes to <laughs> covering this this uh, once in a hopefully century pandemic that we're dealing through. There's a lot you hit on there that I want to go back to, but my first question would relate to what I think is really a question that a lot of people have when it comes to children and how they're coping and dealing with the coronavirus, with not being able to see their friends in school if they're in an online learning model. What can you say to parents about some feedback and some advice as to how they can navigate this difficult situation with their children? Gosh, I mean, that was something that um, my colleague Corey, Corey Turner and I tried to get down to. Um, one thing that the when we when we spoke to our sources and we spoke to de developmental psychologists and we spoke to um, ch children's counselors and that type of thing. And a lot of the times their big recommendation was to give children a sense of control in their own lives, that things are so up in the air in, in the rest of their lives and what they're seeing in, in the news, in the pandemic. And so you need to give children a sense of control. And sometimes that comes into giving them responsibilities around the house, um, giving them control over the, their own emotions by being mindful to meditate, to think about um, you know each activity, do breathing exercises, um, give them control over what they want to do for the day and how they might want to help in the, in the family affairs, um, ask for their feedback and ideas. So I thought that was a piece of advice. What's, what I find fascinating is all those pointers carry over to us adults. We need to learn to be mindful and to breathe and to learn to control what we can control. So it seems like a big takeaway is these aren't just lessons for kids. They're applicable to all oh, no. of us. Oh, I, believe me, I took the, that, that advice for myself after I finished drawing it. <laughs> I actually set up a meditation um, space in my room as a result of that story. See, you're, you're really practicing what you preach when it comes to the journalism and the facts you've unearthed for your, your work with NPR. And, and I want to, you mentioned misinformation, and I'm not going to make this all about this topic because we could spend two weeks easily talking about misinformation campaigns, but what what have you unearthed about the misinformation about the coronavirus and everything? You know, people think that the vaccine, there's all these conspiracy theories out there as to reasons why people won't take it. And unfortunately, what seems to happen is if you fall prey to the misinformation, you could literally be risking your life, uh, putting your life on the lines by not following what the medical community is telling us. Yeah, I mean, what I found is that like all those efforts, John, to... Um, basically like flag and label um, tweets or posts as, as false information. I mean, that it's just not enough. Like there's just tens of millions of posts every single day. And we really only get to the most viral ones. The social media companies only address the most viral ones and the biggest ones. And 
that's just not enough to change the the day-to-day um behaviors of people you know it's it's overwhelming it's overwhelming and it's it's scary you know the media should be the fourth estate that people trust to give them information and yet people for whatever reason whatever source they're consuming tells them the media media bad you're the ones who are out to get us Ugh, if they saw me this morning crying over my edit um and knowing that i spent six weeks on the story and every single freaking sentence takes like so long to write like 40 minutes just because i want to make triple sure that it's absolutely correct then they would say you know what maybe the means the mainstream media isn't so lame as they say (laughs) i can tell malika you're very passionate about this line of work what drew you to storytelling and what drew you to journalism in the first place yeah um uh my grandfather was a journalist actually he was um in the philippines he was a journalist for the manila bulletin and my um grand uncle was also a journalist a photojournalist and they were newspaper men in, in back in the old day and my grandfather met a lot of really famous people who came through um from all over the world and got a, got a chance to interview them uh he interviewed um he was there when nixon came to the philippines but there were a lot of famous people and it was really cool um so i grew up with my grandfather just like um you know, writing a column or writing a story on his his typewriter every day. And it didn't seem like a bit a far jump for me to also want to be a journalist too. Although my family hated when I told them I wanted to do journalism because I said I would be poor forever. (laughs) Well, there's wealth in information and there's wealth in knowledge. And I'm sure that there's also a satisfaction knowing that you are doing again, a noble uh, job and profession and bringing people the news out there. So you talk about having your grandfather being inspired by his columns and and wanting to get into journalism with that mindset, take us through Syracuse and how your role at Syracuse, how that either cultivated or honed your love for storytelling. When I went to Syracuse, I felt like I found, I was, when I was in high school, I joined the high school newspaper and um, it seemed that, that um, not everybody in the high school newspaper program like actually cared about writing or journalism or the newspaper in general. It was kind of just like a free period and people could just do whatever. But when I went to Syracuse and met Newhouse and saw how excited and passionate they were um, about writing and about journalism and how they also read Newsweek and also read Time Magazine and loved the New Yorker and were crazy about magazines, and wanted to start um, writing on the the school publication, I felt like, whoa, I just met like 600 of the same me. Like people who are just like really like big nerds about like news. And I felt like I found kindred spirits and it was awesome. I I think there was somebody, there was a question at the beginning of of one of the, the, classes and they were like, raise your hand if you're a part of the school, your, your high school journalism program. And literally everybody raised their hand. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> these are my people. <laughs> of all the journalism schools out there though, I mean, you're in California. I know that there's a strong SUNLA program, but you probably weren't aware of that as a high school uh, junior and senior looking for colleges. So what made you make that plunge and take the commit to go all the way across country to study at Syracuse? I actually um, had a chance to visit Syracuse for my like um, campus visit and I visited in April and I was duped. I looked at that green, that green rolling hills, the blue sky. And I was like, wow, I can really see myself here. That was, that was it. That was it really. And then of course, like, you know, 
the next semester comes and it's like October and I'm like, what the heck? It's snowing. <laughs> Everybody has that bait and switch story where it seems like all the weather gods conspire for the one day on their campus visit. Oh, it's 75 and sunny in late March or <laughs> so early April. you've heard this before. You're, you are not the first, Malika, to, to bring that story to the forefront. And I guarantee you won't be the last either. But oh, man. Clearly, it didn't it didn't sw- it didn't stop you from coming to Syracuse. And, and you know, so, so again, this journalism background, you know, you can have all the passion and all the interests you want, but something has to come out. You have to have that emergence of your storytelling. How did Syracuse coax that out of you? What are some of the lessons you learned from journalism at Syracuse that have stuck with you to this day? Oh, gosh. I mean, I still hear the um, stories of my professor. I mean, like the things that my professors have said drilled into my brain. Um, first of all, I learned that 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 journalism isn't writing. You know, I loved writing when I was in high school, writing in my diary, writing essays, personal essays, writing poetry. But, um, you know, I had a zine uh, in high school about music and I, and I did interviews with bands for my zine. Um, and I learned that that. Um, from journalism school that that just because you're you love to write does have has nothing to do with actually fact gathering and information gathering one of the the first lessons that i learned was from professor steve davis you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit (laughs) and i think about that when i write and i hate him so much (laughs) i also um you know as an editor now um editing wasn't my strong suit and it, it was it was very, very difficult for me. And I remember getting a B minus in that class, which is like really bad for me because I love to get A's. And I'm thinking now as to myself as an editor at NPR, I'm a B minus editor. I'm a B minus editor. <laughs> <laughs> I would cut yourself a little bit of slack. I'm sure you've, you've improved sure it. But that's a, it's a valuable skill though, too, to learn how to be a a self-editor so that it's easier on your editor and it makes your work better. The more critical you think about something, a piece of content, the better off it's going to be when it hopefully uh, appears, whether it's in print or it's on a website or what have you. John, you just gave me a brilliant idea. I have my story open right now. I'm going to do, I'm going to self-edit one more time before I file. Thank you. (laughs) I tell you a source of inspiration, whatever platform it comes here on the Q's Conversations (laughs) alumni podcast. So now, all right, let's connect the dots here for us. How do you go from a California kid studying at Syracuse, how did you transition from that student to now working at NPR? Connect the dots for us. I talked about how when I was growing up, I wanted to get out of my small town, my bubble. And, um, you know, in my family and Filipino culture, you just want to be with the clan. You want to be near your family. You don't want to break away from the clan. You don't want to break away and do something that's different. Um, most Filipinos work in the health sector or the hospitality sector. And those jobs were encouraged for me to do as well. You know, you should think about being a nurse or a doctor or, you know, work, you know, be an accountant, that kind of thing. And when I said I wanted to be a journalist, ironically, because I had family members who were journalists, they were, they were very unsupportive of that. Um, but when I went to Syracuse, you know, I think it validated for me that here I was in one of the best journalism schools in the country and I needed to take the bull by the horn and really just, and just, if I was going to, if I was, if they were allowing me to, to go to this place, to leave home and be in this place, I needed to succeed. I needed to prove to them that, that they did not mistake, make a mistake in allowing me to go there. And so I really needed to, to keep my eye on the ball. And so 
for me, um, I had no idea what Americans do coming from an immigrant family um, to, I don't know what the rules are, John, like the rules in this world are, they're just learned. Okay. So for example, I have to learn that when you, um, you know, you get an informational interview with someone, you write a thank you card back. I didn't even know an informational interview was a thing. I didn't even know you had to write a thank you card back. That was just something I learned in college. I had to learn that you had to get internships every semester, every, every um, summer, if you could. And they needed to be with really, really credible and important and brand worthy and name worthy places. They're competitive. You have to get a good internship, not just an internship to get a job. I also learned about, um, you know, the uh, alumni network. I had no idea that the, the, the power of Syracuse would have when I got hired. When people in, in the working world found that I, I went to Syracuse and studied journalism there, I felt like the gate opened. It's like, oh, okay, she knows exactly what she's talking about. She went to a very good school. She, she knows how it works. That was how my, um, you know, my resume was treated at, at NPR. I felt that because I went to Syracuse, uh, people, you know, felt that I had a good foundation for journalism. Um, so I felt like the doors were really open for me. And the other thing that I learned um, in Syracuse were, were softer, softer skills. So for example, speaking really confidently in front of other people. Filipinos don't talk like that. Filipinos are very quiet and deferential when they're around other people in power or other people with, uh, with you know, who are older. And um, the American way is not like that. Americans have to be a little bit more aggressive. If you have a big idea, you need to share it. Uh, that's how you have to be in the workplace. And I learned how to do things like, you know, how do you eat formally in a, in a, in a, um, with a fork and knife in a formal setting? I remember my professor um, of journalism invited me to have um, uh, dinner with him and another editor and another student. And we went to a really, actually went to a white tablecloth restaurant um, somewhere on Marshall Street. And I had no, I don't remember the name, unfortunately, but, but I, there were like multiple forks and I had no idea what to do. And I, and I sort of just had to copy what I saw them doing. I mean, these are, these are the soft skills that I learned. Anyway, fast forward to, to, to how I got to NPR. I mean, I really kept in touch with my, my professors after college and they helped me uh, get informational interviews, helped connect me with people. They helped me find people to help me get an internship. And um, while I was, uh, you know, in my 20s, I just kept getting copying that same type of learned behavior from school, which was, okay, if I want to network, then I'll just do what I did with my professor, which is just set up informational interviews, see what happens. And I somehow landed at, at, at NPR, thankfully. There, there was a lot to, to unpack there, but I'm glad we took that transition the way we did, because it was nice to both hear how you wound up from Syracuse to NPR, but it also segues selfishly into the topics I want to talk about, about your upbringing, you know, growing up again, being the daughter of two immigrants, being a first generation Filipino, Egyptian American. Um, you, you, you go into a lot of these details in your, your memoir, I Was Their American Dream. Can you, before we kind of summarize the, the, the memoir and the, the points you got at, what was it like for you and how much did you struggle with your identity being in California, which, you know, can be a melting pot, but there's also parts of California that are very 
Caucasian that are very white and you have this diverse background you're coming from. What was it like for you growing up with that? Yeah, so I grew up in a part of California that was mostly Asian and Hispanic. Like, I, I didn't know any white people. There are very few white people. I thought they existed only on TV. And then when I went to Syracuse, I was like, whoa, this is just like television. But I think one of the most striking things is that people didn't seem as interested or, or in, in understanding or asking about my cultural identity. Back in Cerritos, California, where I was from, um, your cultural identity was a really important part of getting to know someone because, you know, knowing whether somebody was from Bangladesh versus India versus Sri Lanka versus from Pakistan, that was very important to know which, which part of South Asia you were from. You don't want to mistake somebody who's from El Salvador with someone who's from Mexico. They have their own distinct cultures and it's very important to know that distinction, especially in a very, very diverse place like Cerritos. So in, in Syracuse, I was actually shocked that no one seemed to be very interested. And when I tried to talk about it with people who were mostly my, my white classmates, um, I think it was hard for them to talk about. I think they didn't know how to, to discuss it. And I think many of them thought that, um, you know, I don't see color. I mean, I think that that was their way of saying, you know, like, whatever you are, I accept you. But it doesn't dig deeply enough into Oh, okay, so you're Egyptian, but but so tell me about your family, um, you know, traditions. Do you miss that? You must miss that at home. Tell me more about that. I'd love to get to know more about that. I didn't really have that much curiosity that I was hoping and expecting because part of my identity is 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 my culture. So if you don't ask me about my culture, then I can't share my full self with you. And how do you forge those friendships if you're not talking about your full self and not just those superficial conversations that you know might be fine for your freshman year, but by the time you're a sophomore, junior, senior, you really want to have meaningful connections with people. Oh yeah, but you know, um, I I had a very very tight group of Syracuse friends that I remained friends with in my twenties and now in my thirties. These people are my ride or die friends. They were my college roommates on Euclid Avenue, and <laughs> um, many of them apologized to me after my book was written, saying that they. Um, they really were sorry that they never talked about it more. They didn't know how to talk about it. And um, they were really glad that I shared my story now and would love to talk about it now, but. <laughs> I guess it's, it's better late, late than never. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I love them. And so, yeah. So one of the core tenets of, of your book, again, I Was Their American Dream, you talk about what it means to live the American dream. For you, what did that sentiment mean of living the American dream? And, and what kind of challenge was it um, with with the expectations that your parents might have had for you? I think that my parents have this very traditional view of what American dream means, right? They, they thought it was um, having a big house, wearing designer clothing, going to Disney World. I mean, this is like pretty um, common in the American dream narrative. Think white picket fence. But um, for me, I, I didn't really care about those things. What I cared about was to just be in a place in my life where I could feel like I was being accepted by lots of different people and feel like I could be myself and feel like I can do, be supported by whatever endeavor I wanted to do, whether to be an artist, I mean, as simple as that and not my family hate me. It's interesting because you talk about expectations and I know that, you know, it's ingrained in all of us, not to generalize, but you should try to strive to do better 
than the generation of your parents. You should try to be a better off, have a better life. Did you find that there was that type of uh, situation that was relevant for you too, where, you know, did, or was it different being again, a first generation American when it came to striving for goals and comparing yourself? Because I feel like we always, I always grew up being like, I need to do better than my parents. I need to rise up and achieve whatever that achievement is. I need to raise the bar because they raised the bar for my grandparents and their grandparents and vice versa down the chain. So did that apply to you at all? You know, I'm glad to hear you had the same experience. And I think that that's just the, like the, it's like the human experience, right? You want to do right by your parents' sacrifice. Like they did so much for you and you want to, you want to show up and like make sure that they're proud of you because of how hard they worked for you. Um, I think my biggest regret is that um, I think because my parents had such huge pressures on, because I felt like they sacrificed so much, I felt this, I placed a huge pressure upon myself to do well. And a lot of that was myself placing that pressure. And I felt like I had to go to the highest of heights for them to, to accept the work that I did. So for example, I had to write a book for them to say, wow, yeah, we can see you being an art an artist. I had to be at NPR, the largest media organization, one of the largest media organizations in the country for them to say, oh yeah, you've made it as a journalist. You know, imagine if I was like, you know, I mean, anything less would have been a disappointment for them. And I think that sucks. It does because you should be able to celebrate if you're working at some newspaper in Boise, Idaho, or if you're working at NPR, if exactly. you're achieving your goals and what you want to do, you should feel fulfilled and satisfied and not have this invisible barrier to live up to. Exactly. What about though your memoir? What, because you were, you were relatively young uh, and, and, and you still are when, when you put out this memoir, what was it about the time in your life that was it just solely your parents and trying to let them know, Hey, this is exactly who I am and what I've accomplished. Or was there more to it? Yeah, I think that I was very moved by the rhetoric that I was seeing after the before the 2016 elections. I, I came from a place that was a melting pot in America and didn't think about race or identity pretty much at all. I didn't really think about it that much, except for telling people that I was Filipino Egyptian and being Filipino at home and being Egyptian at home. Like I didn't really think about it critically. But after um, during the 2016 election time, um, there were so many negative um, perspectives and negative things being said about immigrants. I was like, hold the phone. Do people, are we not cool? Are we not cool here in America with immigrants? And if we are, what's the deal? And I started to like, like, it felt like a record scratch. So I tried to, um, <laughs> to like counter the narratives by drawing my, my family's own experiences. Like there was this time when they were, I think that, People in the media were talking about how um, Muslims were terrorists and like Asian people were like desperate to come and take other people's jobs. And I was like, first of all, my mom didn't even want to come here. She was happy in the Philippines. She had a boyfriend and her dream job. And then her family told her that she had to move to the U.S. and her whole entire dream was disrupted. So and then secondly, my dad, you're like the Muslim person that that is scary. My dad likes Tom Hanks and he wears jorts. <laughs> like I, I re truly find someone scarier than him. Truly, um, and as I was drawing these these um, these cartoons, I realized that I hadn't really thought that much about um, 
about how I felt about my identity and maybe it was time. And that's how I dream was born. I love when a story comes together and you painted such a lovely picture too of the realization. And, and it's a good segue for me into your work as a cartoonist. I think that is so cool that you were able to express yourself, not only with the work at NPR, but in the visual form as a cartoonist. Have you always been interested in that form of media? Actually, no. I mean, I, I used to draw and stuff. I mean, in my, in my diaries and like doodle and, but not until like, um, you know, my, early 20s and I started to draw little cartoons and stuff. I made, I came from zines, like the, the subculture of zines, making my own tiny magazines. That's why I wanted to go to school for magazine journalism at NPR because I wanted to work as a magazine editor after my childhood making small magazines for myself. So um, these cartoons, never in my freaking wildest dreams did I think I'd end up being a comics artist. I. I, I have no idea how that happened. But when I go to comics arts conventions and I look around other comics artists, I'm like, whoa, are we the same? Are we, are we the same? <laughs> I'm a nerd, aren't I? <laughs> I'm going to a comics convention with my mom. I'm a nerd. <laughs> how can you describe, Malika, uh, the, the contents and what inspires you for your cartoons? Yeah, I often draw about um, myself and my feelings and what I'm going through. Like, I often use comics and zines and illustrations to um, reflect on things that have happened to me and, and process my feelings, honestly. I know it sounds super woo-woo, but it really works for me and has worked um, since I was a child. Well, you've really had uh, quite the creative career since graduating from Syracuse. And I don't want to break news, but we mentioned you have another book uh, that's coming out, another graphic memoir called It Won't Always Be Like This. Can you give us a little teaser as to what we can expect from that book? Yeah, so I spent um, most of my summers in my childhood uh, in Cairo, Egypt, um, with my dad and his and my new family there. My, my dad got remarried, had a bunch of kids, and I was like, maybe I should revisit that and go through how that affected me. So I basically go over what it was like to to be a part of that family the process of becoming part of that family and spending my time in such a such a strange place for an american um the middle east and uh and try to understand the culture even though I, i'm half egyptian i felt like there was just so much to learn and i could never wrap my head around um understanding that part of the world but it turns out in the end, I kind of, I kind of learned some a few things. You learned a little bit about your identity, and and you're continuing those educational lessons from what it was like to figure out who you were growing up. And I think that's really remarkable that you continue to keep pushing yourself to learn self discovery, who you are, what your identity is all about, and what greater platform than to have NPR and your work as an illustrator, cartoonist, and author to uh, to put those skills to use. Thank you, and I want to say, John, you are so good at interviewing. I, I appreciate I just, you saying I'm, that. I, 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 you like you you. I answer and then you hear what I say and then you turn into a new question. That's wonderful. I need to do that. It's <laughs> I need to I mean, how to do that. It, it comes from a couple of years of experience, been around the block once or twice, but it's nice to kind of because again, I, I want to feel like, and I mentioned for our audience that we view these podcasts really as an insight into the alum that we're profiling. It's their story. I wish you nothing but the best with all your future endeavors. Keep up the great work. Me too. Thank you so much for taking the time.
Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.